Relating to Self. A podcast that helps you create a better relationship with yourself. Hey, I'm Joachim. Welcome. Do you realize that there is only one relationship that you will always be in? The relationship with yourself. Improving that relationship changes everything. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and I invite real people to have vulnerable conversations about how they relate to themselves and what we can learn from that. In today's episode, Egan, who we know from season one, interviews me. Now that's interesting. Hey, Egan, it's lovely to have you back on the Relating to Self podcast. You were one of the first episodes, I think, like, like in the first five or so of season one, if I remember correctly. And that was a, an interesting and somewhat difficult conversation, I remember, because you were so well read and had so many interesting concepts that I didn't really know about. And now we're going to do something very different. You're back here to interview me. That's right. Yes. Thank you for having me back. Immediately, I was curious of sort of your own relationship with yourself. And also that podcast and you interviewing me really sparked a lot of, I continue to think about that, you know, from then until now. So it's, it's been helpful. I think the, you're, you're already reaching some of your mission or doing sort of what you what you want to do of getting people to think about it. And so I think there's a lot you can model and that's why I'm excited to ask you about it. Wow. Beautiful. I love that. Thank you so much, Egan. And yeah, it also ties into probably the most questions I've had about the podcast was exactly something like, Hey, you have this podcast. We always hear you talk to other people and ask them questions. But as a listener, it would be really nice to know more about what you think. So thank you so much for, for having also proposed to do this. Actually, I remember even back then when we recorded the first episode with you, uh, you wanted to do this. That's phrased so positively. I think a cynical person could even say, what's your angle, man? <laughs> yeah. Well, let's see about that. Let's, let's dive in, <laughs> bring it on. Okay. Well, I just listened to your episode with Troy and that was very helpful. I learned lots of things, but two big ones. One is I've been pronouncing your name wrong and all the time I've known you. So it sounds like Joachim is better. Is that right? Nope, that's still wrong. <laughs> I'm still wrong. I'm trying to imitate what Troy said, but yes, I'll, I'll, but Troy says it wrong too. So. Okay, Hoakim is better. Nope, still not there. One more time. You, you teach me can one I more time, it? and then we can move on. Yeah, Joachim. Joachim. Almost. Almost. I'll listen to this later, and I'll practice it for next time. Thank you. Great. All right. Neither here nor there. The thing that was such a relief to me, Joachim, was when you guys got talking about trauma and having to work through that. And I think in, I, I was almost concerned about this conversation of what's this guy going to say? Like, like, is this guy as happy as he seems to be like, like an unhappy person is almost like skeptical of a happy person. Like what, what are they putting on? What's the deal here? What's, you know, like if you're, if you're in a negative mind loop, it's, it's hard to believe that other people are happy. And so maybe I'm <laughs> revealing more about myself than I want to be and kind of where I'm at with things. But I think I've, you know, I've been on this journey here and now I'm trying to be happy and trying to be happy like you, you know? And so that piece, 
I'm very curious if I, if I may ask before the moment when you had this large realization or like these past, you know, traumas came flooding back to you and these things that you realized you needed to deal with. I'm curious, were you in behavioral loops? Were you in denial? You know, were you having unhealthy habits that were ways for you to sort of not deal with that, with those issues? Beautiful question. Thank you. Um, the short answer is yes to all of the above. <laughs> and I can, I can go into more detail if you, if you like about in which ways that manifested in my life, but there's definitely a time in which I both was stuck in all kinds of behavioral patterns and loops and numbing mechanisms and everything without even being aware that that was the case. Right. And so I'm not sure I would say I was unhappy at the time. It was more, maybe more like a blissful ignorance or something, because I was still trying to focus on what brought me joy. And there were lots of things in my life that were very joyful and beautiful that I, that I valued. But in the background, there was this like smoldering lake of lava, I guess, that I just mostly didn't look at. And it seems like we're, my impression, at least where I'm at with things is sort of converging on some synthesis of what we know in modern psychology and then also precepts of Buddhism and things about meditation. And so I, I feel like I am per, perhaps on a similar path as you. And I like that. I'm curious, do you perceive this in others now? Do you, is it crystal clear to you when other people are walking around with defense mechanisms and they they have things that they're not ready to face? And, you know, I know this is the Relating to Self podcast, but I'm also curious now that you've been to the other side, you know, how do you comport yourself in the world with other people who are maybe not ready to face, you know, their demons? Mm. Well, I think, first of all, it's important to mention that I believe that goes for every single one of us, right? I certainly am not above that yet. I, I still have my demons. I still have things I struggle with, some things still trigger me. So, you know, that's something I'm working through. But I do believe that because of my awareness of those mechanisms and patterns in me and the work I've done, it's indeed probable that I can spot it quickly in others. I think I would say something like, I also don't really use that information as in, I don't believe that I can change anything about that. So even if I were to have this idea of like, oh, perhaps I can help these people, which I think is an illusion. But even if I were to have that idea, the, the best thing that I could hope for is to perhaps just open a conversation about it and through that conversation, maybe inspire these people to look at it for themselves. Because I don't think that telling someone, hey, it looks like you're struggling with some things, maybe you should look into it. I don't think that would work because I also don't think that would have worked on me uh, like 20 years ago. If someone would have told me that, I would have been like, what the hell, dude? Like, <laughs> what do you know about me? Nothing. So, There's so much that yeah. we're not ready to hear. Yeah. And so I also don't want to take the position where I'm like in this higher truth, like, oh, I see this person needs something that I know about them and they don't. That's definitely not how I act. 
I think the only thing I do is try to act with compassion when I perceive that. And then sometimes also the other side is that I, I see there are consequences to me noticing if people interact with me in ways that are too driven by what I perceive to be patterns or trauma. I don't feel like I want to be around people like that very much. So I prefer to just remove myself from those kind of relationships instead of trying to, you know, improve those people. I know you've done a fair bit of coaching and you are a coach. And it seems like one of those precepts of to even work with a coach, like you've got to be ready. It's not anything else where someone tells you, Hey, you need to go work with a coach. It's kind of that way with a therapist or with the meditation retreat or any of these things, if people really need to come to it on their own. Yeah, I agree. And then the only question again is what inspires people to do so? And I think that's one of the big reasons why I'm doing this podcast. I think this eventually might inspire some people to inquire further into the questions, wait, how do I relate to myself? And for me, that was the same. Like, why did I end up in a meditation retreat? Because in some way I was inspired to do so. And I can't remember exactly what it was that inspired me. Probably a combination of things. Same thing was at therapy. I went to therapy. I don't remember why I went to therapy. Probably I heard about people having some good results with going to therapy. And then when I became aware of some tensions inside of me, I was like, hey, maybe that would work for me too. I don't remember. But the important part is that there, there are things and influences that will perhaps inspire us to take those steps. And I want to contribute to a world where there are lots of conversations and potential starting points for people to start doing this work. And, and yeah, phrased quite positively, I think you're, you're, you're leading by example, right? And that's kind of the way on this of there, there is a journey to this. And I think that that with the episode with Troy was the first one where you've had, we've turned the tables and had someone asking you, right? Yeah. Yeah. That was yeah. kind of like a, <laughs> a funny thing. It was not something I thought about. It was just Troy in, inquired really. He was like, Hey, I would really like to do that because he was on a podcast as well in, in the very early season. And he just asked me, can I do this? And then I thought, yeah, why not? That sounds interesting. It was more like an experiment, but it worked well. Actually, it was the the second most listened to episode of season one. All right. It's something to think about because for if you're interviewing people who have not thought about it before, which is probably most people, you know, there's we we or they are, might still be early in the journey versus you might be able to lead more of be conscious about this. This, this really matters for your well-being and your happiness, right? Yeah, definitely. This is the, the thing that has made the most difference in my life. That's beautiful. I have to ask then being on each side of what you guys called it an earthquake or try or use that phrase, you know, being on each side of that before the meditation retreat, after the meditation retreat, what was your relationship to I'll call it hedonistic pleasures, you know, short-term dopamine rushes that ultimately pass. Do you have a new discipline around that and a new mindset around those things? I haven't thought about that. I think part of my trauma patterns is that I am suspicious of pleasure. So enjoying things 
hedonistic pleasures tended to be difficult for me. I had a difficult relationship with allowing myself to experience them. So I think interestingly, maybe after this earthquake or after the going on the journey, I think now I am finally learning to step into pleasure and to see pleasure, hedonistic pleasure or pleasure of the senses, let's say, as a, as a good thing, as a desirable thing. I'm not certain that all hedonistic pleasure is just about dopamine hits. I think there's a balance there to be found. And it feels to me now that some of the hedonistic pleasure that I currently pursue feels more like a, a well-being practice, almost. So it's not about the dopamine hits, it's about stepping into allowing myself to have desires towards hedonist pleasure, and then looking how I can allow myself to have them without going back to the, the triggered patterns or the trauma behavior, right? I think that the dopamine seeking is more when the trauma patterns are triggered and then you're just in it for that, for the hit. And I think that's not how I see these things anymore. So to give you an example, I can have a very beautiful and mindful experience of a fancy meal, for example. And it doesn't feel to me that I'm doing that just for the, for the kick or the hit of the dopamine, but more like as a, as a practice of truly enjoying all the flavors and the textures and being with myself in that moment very closely connected to my desire for that food. And yeah, it's, it's, it's almost a meditative experience, I would say, which is part of the reason that sometimes I enjoy going to good restaurants on my own more than with people, because then I can stay in my experience instead of also being present to someone else in a conversation. Mm, having a nice meal by yourself. That's a, that's a very interesting one. I was, I, I suspected you have these things where you allow yourself joys and pleasures and that's part of the broader happiness, but it's never pathological. I, I, I fear how much I'm <laughs> revealing here in my questions, but it sounds like on each side of the earthquake, you may have had a different relationship to pleasure than some where it was bef before the earthquake, you were distrustful of it. And now you open up and allow yourself pleasures more. Sure. And I'm not saying that, that, you know, all of my pleasure seeking is purely mindful. <laughs> I'm, I'm very certain that there are also the, the opposite sides to that still, you know, sometimes I, I have the impulse to order a fat burger <laughs> and, you know, I'm enjoying that burger way too quickly or not enjoying it just like, you know, uh, eating it quickly because I crave the, the carbs and the fats. And, and then afterwards I feel like, well, that probably wasn't the best way to do this. So I still have that too. It's, it's both sides. I'm curious then turning to relationships and romance and how you think about that. I think many people who know, you know, you're, mm. you have what I think could largely be described as an unorthodox approach. Um, in the West, we've really fallen into, you know, our one romantic partner, that's it. That's kind of like the source of our happiness and all this. And because people put so much on it, it's, um, there's a lot of 
disappointment and unhappiness that comes from the fallout of that. So I, th I think when I wanted to ask you about it, again, I was in this dopamine hit sort of thing. And so I had like a lurid interest in it. But now, it, like, particularly after hearing your episode with Troy, I, you know, I can only assume you have a philosophy around it, a balanced sort of approach. I'm just curious to hear you talk about, yeah, how do you think about romance or sexuality in your life? Hmm. That's such a deep question, Egan. <laughs> um, where shall I start? Well, let's start with the most obvious. I, when I hear you say that, you know, I have a philosophy, what I think is like, oh God, that's, that's definitely not what it feels like to me. I, I have some insights here and there and I, I have some preferences and I try out some stuff, you know, there's no, there's no framework. There's no finished kind of model of how I see this, but the main point, and that is something that goes for almost everything in my life now is that I just try to be real. I try to look at what's true for me and how I feel in each moment and what feels good and what doesn't, and then act accordingly. So when it comes to um, relationships, call them romantic relationships, if you will, or, or relationships in which sexuality has a place, I definitely don't think anymore that your partner should make you happy. You know, that's the basic level. I don't think there is a should. Your partner shouldn't do anything. I mean, your partner is a human being with agency and with their own desires and needs. And they are responsible for their experience and for dealing with their feelings. One thing they're absolutely not responsible for is for my happiness. So I don't think a romantic partner owes you anything. I think what a romantic partnership is about for me is two people engaging in experiences and conversations that both parties clearly consensually want to be part of. So it's an exploration of continuous consent. It's asking yourself the question at all times, am I here because I really want to be here? Is this what I truly want? And this also means being very clear about the fact that you cannot be attached to the outcome of that question from your partner. If your partner at any point says like right now, you know, I don't want to be here with you. I want to be doing something else. You have no rights over your partner. And that for me goes very far. It goes in all domains. I, I have no rights over my partner in, in any way. The only thing I can keep reminding myself of is something like, I want them to have the agency, to use it fully, to live their lives to the extent that it makes them happy. And then all I can do is see to which extent I want to engage with them and I want to share things with them. And that may change along the way. But that's kind of like my, my basic vision of what a partnership and to be fair, pretty much any other relationship in my life is like. So that's, that's been the big shift for me. I, I don't think anymore as I used to think that romantic relationships or sexual relationships are different than any other kind of relationships. All relationships are basically just two people 
engaging in a conversation about what it is that they want to share with each other. And that could be anything. I'm very self-conscious in my role on this podcast as the voice of some sort of conservative philosophy, because that's very new for me. I've been left wing most of my life and just recently just had this like total switch and I'm just, I don't, I'm, I don't even know where I'm at or how to express it, but I'll just, I'll just pose a question from that side and not knowing my place in it or where I fit or how I got here. It's part in a romantic relationship called a sexual relationship where you get past the initial excitement and you get into some hard stuff. How do you approach that? How do you think about that? And I don't know if we use the word should, it sounds like we don't, but is there value in staying past that and working through that part? Well, I think it depends what you want and what you want probably depends on what it is that you value. If you value realness and commitment and a long-term deepening of a human relationship, then the answer is yes, absolutely. And I, for one, certainly value those things. I value deep human connections. I value seeing a person's weaknesses and shadows and holding space for a person to grow within a relationship. So for me personally, I absolutely see the value of sitting with hardship in a relationship and working through it with a partner. I think that is an, an essential element of getting to anywhere that feels like a place where you can say that maybe you know each other. And again, I'm not judging if for some other people that is not what they value in relationships. I think that's okay. The only thing that matters is that you figure out what it is that you value in relationships and then act with integrity towards those values. Going back to, you know, the pieces we talked about, about each individual working through their own traumas, does that part need to come first or does that part need to be figured out in order for those difficult parts of the relationship to endure? I tend to think there is no have to. I think everything's possible. I think it's possible to enter a relationship while not having, having started the work of working through your traumas. And if the partnership is open and flexible enough to accommodate that kind of change, I think it's possible for two people to work through that at their own pace for themselves while staying together in a partnership. Is that easy? No, that's really hard. <laughs> that kind of change is, it's already very hard for oneself, I feel. So doing that while also holding space for an other and then engaging with an other to keep the connection going while both going through that, I think that's, that's hard, but possible. Um, so I don't think you, you can actually ever be ready with that work. So it wouldn't be fair to say you need to do that work first and then you can have a successful relationship. I, I don't believe in that. We are all always on the path of working through our shit. <laughs> and I think when entering a relationship, one of the things I want to figure out is if the other person is able to, first of all, hold space for their own shit and take ownership for their shit and work through it. And then also, do they have the capacity 
to observe me going through my shit while not freaking out. But besides that, yeah, I think everything's possible. Very recent understanding I've come to or just where I'm at with it is sort of one of the large sources of value in a long-term relationship and in, in, we'll say, a marriage of like, hey, I'm going to stay with you regardless of that, that sort of promise, you know, is that understanding that I'm still going to be here as we work through this. Like, so there's, there's like, it's like bounded. And I think as divorce is more pervasive, there's kind of a feeling of we don't have that anymore. And that I think potentially triggers anxiety in people that there, there is no unconditional circle of care and concern around them to work through those things. So I'm curious, you know, if we all have some form of stuff we're not seeing about ourselves and things we're not dealing with, that person that knows us better than anyone and knows us closely and spending time with us, they're going to see those and they're going to bring them up. And I think if how, you know, is there value in taking that feedback, being real with it, adapting to it, and can that be done without that longer commitment? I have a very controversial opinion here. I think for me, when it comes to giving the kind of commitment that is marriage, this idea of like, you know, I'm going to stick around no matter what happens. I think that I would use that as a way to actually not have to do the work. Like, hey, if I get married to this person, this person's going to be around no matter what happens. So I can, I can be lazy as shit. I can do nothing. I can be a monster. You know, I can not face my demons. And this person is going to be here anyway. So, ah, you know, it's an easy solution. It gives me a sense of security, like a false sense of security that there will always be some, there will always be someone for me there, even if I am not here for myself. So I think that's a kind of like a lazy position to be in. I think since I've changed my mind, like, hey, no, I, I don't think of things this way anymore. I'm like, no, I want to take responsibility. And I believe that it's possible and it can be valuable to give the kind of commitment that is marriage. But I don't believe that that's a necessary requirement for actually going deep in a relationship or for having a long-term perspective. Quite the contrary. I think I am able to better navigate what I actually want long-term without the cookie cutter arrangement of what society thinks a long-term relationship should be like in terms of like, this is a marriage because a marriage kind of entails certain legal obligations marriage is mostly a contract in in our law system right and of course people have all these romantic ideas about marriage being some kind of a, a celebration and, and a and a spiritual commitment and all that kind of stuff and that may be true for those people but that's not what it means for society actually it's more like a contract and so i believe that that's not necessarily the way i want to see this i want to be able to say to someone hey i really like you I value spending time with you. And it feels to me right now that I want to continue spending time with you and working through our shit together for a potentially very long time. I don't see a necessary end to this relationship. Would you want to be in that with me? 
And I think that kind of commitment from my side would be stronger than any kind of signature on a contract that says that we are legally bound to certain things, mostly financial obligations. And the celebration part, the, the ritualistic part of what marriage is, I think can be also easily had without the necessity for the formal legal marriage. And I would be really excited about that. But the thing is, I would be really excited about that regardless of the length of the relationship that I see happening. I, I would be super excited to, even if I, if I meet someone, I'm like, wow, I'm in love. I want to be with this person. Hey, let's enter a romantic partnership. I would want to celebrate that almost in the way that marriage is celebrated, even without knowing if that's something that I will want forever. Because rituals and celebrations are important. And I think we should celebrate and ritualize what is real for us right now, regardless of future perspectives. And can you share with us too, can a person or do, you know, can you have multiple relationships like this going at one time? Hmm. Yes, I do believe that's possible. Again, I don't think that we can have ownership of other people. I think I want to treat people always as people with agency and their own desires. And when I am around people that I love, my greatest desire is for them to thrive, whatever that means. And if that means that they could include some of the aspects of relationships that are traditionally only reserved for romantic relationships, let's say, with other people, then I don't see why that should have an impact on my relationship with that person. And I'm not saying that it never has an impact, because of course the reality is that time and energy are finite. And I may have certain expectations, or I may value a certain amount of time or a certain amount of depth and this energy that I want to spend with a certain partner. And if that partner says, Hey, I, I love doing this with you, but I also want to spend a considerable amount of time engaging in another romantic relationship, then it may be incompatible with my needs because of time and energy, but not because of this idea that I should have exclusive rights over someone's sexuality or someone's intimacy or someone's love. And I think that the interesting part is that nobody would ever argue that love should be exclusive. We all agree, right? That you can love your parents and your partner. You can love your children and your partner. You can love your friends and your partner. Nobody ever disagrees about that. But then when it comes to expressing that love, suddenly there's a limit. There's like, yes, hugs are probably possible, but maybe also not always. If you hug another person in a bar, maybe then that becomes suspicious and I will become jealous. So you can't do that. And they start expressing rules or kind of like laws of what you can and cannot do with your body. And I'm like, I, I don't want to have rules and laws about what someone else wants to do with their body. I can only honestly react to how what they do impacts me and what I will want in the future. And then that may be an expression of my boundaries. Like, hey, if you do this consistently, if that is your desire, then I don't feel that I want to do X or Y with you because it impacts me negatively. And that's obviously okay. Boundaries are super important. Um, consent is super important. 
but I will never be in a position where I believe that I have a right over someone else's choices or their body or ownership over someone else's choices or body. And so that doesn't mean that I necessarily want to be in a partnership that is polyamorous or, or in an open relationship. Right now, actually, what I feel that my desire is, is to be in a monogamous partnership. And I think there's a very big difference between wanting a monogamous relationship from the perspective of everyone can do what the fuck they want, than from the perspective of this is what's proper. So I don't want a monogamous relationship because that's what society tells me that's right. <laughs> I would like a monogamous partnership at the moment because I feel that's what I desire. I want to explore how that feels. I want to see what that means in my life. I want to see what kind of relationship I can develop if it were monogamous. And so what I'm excited about is to meet someone who equally believes that everything is possible and who maybe even has experienced all kinds of alternative relationships and then makes a very conscious and intentional choice to also be in a monogamous partnership because they're also excited about exploring what that does to a relationship. Like that's, that's what I'm currently excited about. Lastly, I'm very curious of, do you prepare for, you know, the deaths of people you care about and how you'll react to those ultimately your own? How does, how are those issues integrated into your relation to yourself? Wow. I think it's impossible to have an honest and true relationship with yourself while not fully being aware of death. Death as an inevitability of birth. The moment you are born, you know that you will die. Well, you don't know it, but that's kind of what's going to happen. And I have sat with that. I have sat with that quite often. And I have the illusion that I have come to a place where I'm comfortable with the idea of death. And I say, I say illusion because I think we can never know how we feel about something unless we are actually in it. But I feel something like an acceptance, an acceptance of the simple idea that life necessarily includes death. And I guess that's a very simple dualistic principle. If, if there were no death, then life would be meaningless somehow. I've always wondered, like when you think about religions, about quite a few religions have this idea of eternal life. And when contemplating that truly, that just feels very unappealing. And the, the best comparison I've heard to make that clear is something like, the difference between a rose and a plastic rose. Why is a rose more beautiful and more touching than a plastic rose? It's because it'll, it will die. It's because the, the rose is temporary. The plastic rose will continue forever, or well, something that's equivalent to forever. Nobody cares about plastic roses. But the rose is beautiful partly because it is so fragile, because it is bound by time. And there is something there that feels poetic and beautiful and that creates meaning in the period that the rose is here. And I feel the same 
way about my life. From a certain perspective, my life is a, a spark, a, a flash, a very short kind of experience of being in, in a very large time frame. And so I, I feel that same poetic tenderness towards my life and life in general as towards that rose. This is something precious. This is something inexplicable and rare. And so I, I practice gratitude and I practice a sense of feeling joyful, feeling joyful about the simple fact of just being alive right now. And I think that gratitude and that joy can only exist in the face of death. I think that's a beautiful place to end. Thank you for having me on again and letting me ask these questions and thank you for answering them. Egan, you're so welcome. Those were some, whew, some pretty good questions. <laughs> okay, well, thank you so much. This is the end of this episode. I am very curious if any of you out there listening have any more questions. If so, feel free to send me an email. I will leave my email address in the notes of this podcast, or you can find me on social media or anywhere else. I will also post those links and then we can perhaps have a meaningful conversation about your questions on the podcast or just even via email. Egan, thank you so much. Have a beautiful day. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to the podcast. You can also read more of my thoughts on Twitter. I will post a link in the description. And if you are interested in improving your relationship with yourself, please subscribe to my email list at relatingtoself.com. I will then send you meditations, rituals, practices, and more of these beautiful conversations. Thanks. <laughs>